let's head into week three of the four ghosts of Christmas. In 1988, the Sunday Telegraph of London gave Charles Dickens the title of The Man Who Invented Christmas. Now, if you're not familiar with, uh, with the, the history of Christmas celebrations, that might seem a bit of a grandiose title. However, it's not as strange as you would think. Let me give you a little history on Christmas celebrations. In England, at the turn of the 19th century, when Dickens wrote this classic, the celebration of Christmas as a holiday had all but disappeared for a couple of pretty interesting reasons. First, the religious people. We have a way, religious people have a way of killing a good time. Amen? <laughs> Somebody said that very strongly. <laughs> right? Uh, this is why we don't, this is why none of you invite me to your parties. I understand that. Why? What happened? The, the conservative reformed kind of movement in, in London who believed that we shouldn't celebrate Christmas, especially given the popular excesses of at the, at the time, um, had gotten some political power and clout uh, in England, and they had said that Christmas is no longer a valid holiday. Now, you might say to yourself, why would Christians downplay the celebration of Christmas? Well, the truth is that because some of the popular Christmas celebrations in the 16th and 17th century were a long way from the Norman Rockwell-like pictures that you and I like to think about um, when we associate Christmas and, and, you know, this time of year. They were much more like, well, maybe you saw Santacom uh, in New York City yesterday. And uh, somebody posted a picture on Facebook um, uh, of Santa, one of the Santas violently throwing up in the streets of New York City yesterday because SantaCom, you know, everybody dressed like Santa and they go to New York City with 31 different bars and they have a good old time. And, and it had become, in Europe, the celebration of, uh, of Christmas. Something, uh, even beyond that, uh, it was rife with drunkenness and, and sexual license and it was combined with some, like, hooliganism type of activities. In fact, there was a reverend, Henry Bourne of Newcastle, and he lamented that Christmas had, quote, become a pretense for drunkenness and rioting and wantonness. And so when the Puritans kind of got in charge, they said, we're not doing this anymore. We're going to stop it. They actually had outlawed Christmas in the 17th century during their brief flirtation with political uh, power in an effort to wipe out, or, but their effort to wipe it out was, was not largely successful. The disappearance of Christmas from English culture actually had more to do with something else. It had more to do with the social impact of industrialization and urbanization. Large numbers of people were leaving the English countryside, their ancestral villages, and, and moving into the cities and, in those, and leaving behind their customs. And when they would get to the cities, in those cities, they would run into bosses like Ebenezer Scrooge, who weren't big on or, in, or weren't really very inclined to encouraging a holiday that meant a day off from work, especially a day of paid vacation. So what Scrooge was writing of, or what, what uh, Scrooge was showing, was not unusual for the day. Another implication of the big city life in Victoria, England, was widespread, now you need to hear this because this really comes into play today, widespread poverty and suffering. M although many people in London were profiting and, and worked in factories and offices, wages and, uh, were low and living conditions for the middle and lower class were very poor. And this was an abiding concern for Dickens, especially in the fall of 1843 when he took a trip to Manchester and he stayed at his sister's house who was named Fan, just like in the book. 
And Fan had two young sons, one of whom was frail and sick, not unlike Tiny Tim in the book. So that October of 1843, Dickens began to write a Christmas carol. According to his own testimony, he was writing the, uh, this short book. Uh, in the writing of this short book, he had a spiritual experience. Because uh, our own celebrations of Christmas have been so, so strongly influenced by Dickens, you can easily overlook some of the things that he contributed to. For example, Christmas is a major holiday. At the time of Dickens, it was relatively ignored by most people. Christmas is a one-day or maybe two-day Christmas Eve, Christmas Day celebration rather than the traditional 12 days of Christmas. We sing of them, but we don't really celebrate them anymore because of Dickens. Christmas is an occasion for family and close friends to gather for luscious food, singing, dancing, games. Before a Christmas carol, turkey was an uncommon thing on Christmas tables. After the book, it became the meat of choice for Christmas. And Christmas is a time for being generous to the poor had never been thought of until this book was written. So close was the connection between Dickens and Christmas that when he died in 1870, a young woman who heard of it was aghast. Dickens dead, she exclaimed. Then will Father Christmas die too. However, here we are in Mendham, New Jersey, 2014, celebrating Christmas in a fashion revived by Dickens and relating the story of Christmas to the story of Dickens. And if you were to ask me why, why the staying power of this story, I would tell you the reason that the story still resonates with us so strongly all these years later is twofold. The first is that the world hasn't actually changed very much in the last 150 years. And the second is, after all, the telling the story of Ebenezer Scrooge and Bob Cratchit, that story is essentially a retelling of the gospel and the power of redemption and restoration and rebirth, it's a story of what happens when an old man repents and is born again. And that story never gets old. It's still a good story. So we're on Ghost 3 today of the four ghosts that Dickens introduced us to. And my goal has been to help us see the parallels in the story that Dickens wrote, which he wanted to parallel the gospel in many ways, and the story in the birth of Jesus. Because the truth is, you and I need a reawakening, no less than Ebenezer Scrooge need a reawakening on Christmas. Now, if you haven't been with us and you've missed a week or two of this, you can order the CDs on your way out at the Welcome Center. You can go online and listen for free. But the first, the first week was the, the ghost of Jacob Marley. And he asked a great, Scrooge's old business partner, he asked a great question to Scrooge. He said to him, he said, what, what is your business? And that story of the spirit coming back in the form of a warning of Jacob Marley to his friend, it paralleled so closely to the story of, that Jesus told about Lazarus and the rich man and how the rich man longed to send one to warn his brothers about how they were giving their lives to excess and how it was going to doom them in this life and the next. And last week we looked at the ghost of Christmas past and how the truth is for all of us, in one way or another, every one of us, please don't deny it, the past is something that forms us haunts us, and how the coming of Christ, while we celebrate all the time what it means for our future, we need to celebrate what it means for our past. Because Christ not only came to ensure your future, but he came to heal your past. So today we're going to take a quick look at the ghost of Christmas present, which, if I'm honest with you, might be the most troubling. I mean, this is a troubling, this is a troubling is apparition, is that the right word for the ghost here? And it's a controversial ghost. I told Joan when I came home this week, I told Darren, 
um, in our pre-meeting. I said, I, I'm so deep into this story now, and I'm so seeing the parallels of the scripture with it, that it's hard for me to get into the American Christmas spirit. It's, you know, we're going home, and Jonah's hanging the Christmas things up, and I'm like, yeah. And that, well, I certainly don't want that to happen to me or to any of you. There is so much truth in the story um, that it, it, it's, it's not so much that I want to put up a Christmas tree. It more makes me want to kind of bow my knee and start to understand what's going on with this birth of Jesus. The gospel, the coming of Jesus, as much as we've softened it in the manger scenes, it's troubling. It really is troubling. It still turns uh, the ways of the world on its head. It's still dangerous. It's still subversive to the culture and to kingdoms. Remember, we go to Guatemala every year, and, and we talked about this a couple years ago when we studied this. You know, Mary's, um, Mary's song, right, the Magnificat of Mary, was banned from being sung and spoken of in the, in, up until the 1980s in Guatemala because it was considered this story of God coming for the poor, the broken, the marginalized, the least of these, was way too subversive. You weren't allowed to speak of it, even today. The truth is that our present, yours and mine, could still use a little haunting. So let's get started with that. We're going to pick up with Scrooge having once again be a re being reawakened by his second visitor, the ghost of Christmas present. If there's one theme that plays out in this story, and I would tell you also in the Bible itself, over and over, is this concept of reawakening. In fact, if you remember, we've seen it each week so far, Scrooge has told he either hasn't seen things right, or he can't see, or he's chosen not to look. And of course it was Jesus too that said, right, are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see, and ears but fail to hear? And so the journey of Scrooge's reawakening continues, and his, his eyes become open to the plight and injustice of those around him, as he visits the home of Bob Cratchit on Christmas Day in perhaps the most iconic moment of the film. So let's check that out. The first clip this morning as Scrooge shows up at Cratchit's house on Christmas Day. It's all Bob Cratchit can afford. Me. Are we all served? Yes, sir. Then let's begin. And a Merry Christmas to us all. A Merry Christmas to us all. And God bless us, everyone. Spirit, will he live? I see a vacant place at this table. I see a crutch without an owner, carefully preserved. If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, the child will die. No. No, say he will be spared. If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, none other of my species will find him here. But if he is to die, then let him die and decrease the surplus population. You use my own words against me. So perhaps in the future you will hold your tongue until you have discovered what the surplus population is 
and where it is. It may well be that in the sight of heaven, you are more worthless and less fit to live than millions like this poor man's child. Scrooge's quote, the spirit reminds him, came in the beginning of the story when the guys off the street came in trying to raise some money for the poor. In fact, the whole quote was this. Let me read it to you. The workers came in that were collecting money. They said, at this festive season of the year, Mr. Scrooge, it's more than usually desirable that we should make some slight provision for the poor and destitute who suffer greatly at the present time. Many thousands are in want of common necessity. Hundreds of thousands are in want of common comfort, sir. And if you know the story, Scrooge looks back at him and he says, are there no prisons? Plenty of prisons. And the union workhouses, demanded Scrooge, are they still in operation? Both very busy, sir. Those who are badly off must go there. Many can't go there, the, the man replied. Many would rather die. Well, if they would rather die, said Scrooge, they had better do it and decrease the surplus population. Now, if you remember, we started this series. I reminded each of you to enter the story, but please don't enter the story as Bob Cratchit. But to see ourselves, to have eyes that see correctly, we need to enter the story and see where we have paralleled Scrooge. It's, it's like when we read the scriptures, enter, enter the story, but don't assume you're a disciple. Assume you might be a Pharisee. Because the truth is, we have more in common, especially this morning, especially in Mendham, New Jersey, with Scrooge than we would like to think. Because the scriptures are replete, and I'm not going to go through them this morning. There's no way I would have time. We'd be here all day because they're overflowing in regards um, to, to those on the right side of the empires of the world and how they're to treat those on the wrong sides of the empires of the world. Put simpler, maybe, the Bible is very clear about what we're supposed to do, those of us with much, how we're supposed to treat those with little. And if you're hearing my voice this morning in Menham, New Jersey, or you're listening to it on the Internet with a computer... Uh, by the, any historical standard or by present-day standards, you have much. You see, our problem is not a lack of resources. Our problem is a lack of vision. We, we lack eyes that see. Proverbs 28, 27 says, Those who give to the poor will lack nothing, but those who close their eyes to them receive many curses. We have a habit of closing our eyes to the poor took uh, the missionary out that was staying with us far shell a couple weeks ago to New York City to uh, have a nice lunch. And when we got out of the car, um, as soon as we got out, right there, two seconds in, can, can you give me some money? And what, what do you do? It's, so, it's hard, but it, it, it's so easy to close your eyes. I was working on this a lot this week. This was really striking me as I did. And I came across just a stunning study by Princeton University, fascinating and disturbing at the same time. And I, I should have sent in the pictures of the brain scans that they did, but it's, it would kind of be too much for this morning. But they, 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 they did a study involving brain scans, neuroimaging, and response to various stimuli. And the study revealed how the poor are seen or are not seen. More precisely, using neuroimaging, how the brain reacts and lights up, um, shown different pictures. Listen to this. Researchers found that the very poor are viewed with such disdain by the way that our, you know, our brains light up, by what, what happens, what, the, what we naturally think, 
the poor, the very poor are viewed with such disdain they were dehumanized in the eyes of the beholders. Brain activity suggested that the very poor were viewed more like repugnant piles of garbage than as people. This is not a Pharisee in the Bible times. This is not Scrooge in the 19th, in 19th century England. This, for those that have eyes to hear, or eyes to see and ears to hear this morning, is you and I. Quote, Americans react to the poor with disgust, said Susan Fisk, professor of psychology and public affairs at Princeton University and the organizer of the neuroimaging test. She studied attitudes toward the poor for a dozen years. It's, it is the most negative prejudice people report. Listen to this. This is about the poor. It is the most negative prejudice people report greater than even racism. Now, don't, no doubt that part of that response is aesthetic. Some of those who are very poor, especially those living in the street, they smell bad, they're unkempt, they look bad. But a deeper part of the response, according to the study, is moral. Because the poor are stripped of values and are value in the eyes of many. They're seen as useless and not just useless, but an actually, listen to this and compare it to Scrooge, but actually a drain on the more productive and affluent members of the society. Not only do they fail to add anything positive to the world, they usually subtract value like trash piled on a lawn. This might not resonate with your heart, but this is what's going on in our brain. Once people are dehumanized, it's easier to ignore their misery and even oppose efforts to help them. To look at poverty and claim that the moral character of the poor is so deficient that the very programs designed to help them further entrench them in poverty. Listen to this. According to NBC News, Wall Street Journal poll, the single most frequently given for the continuing... Let me give it, say it again. The single most frequently given reason for the continuing problem of poverty when Americans were polled was, quote, too much welfare that prevents initiative. The poll also reflected another common attitude. The poor don't work hard and don't want to work. Does this sound familiar? Are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? Perhaps they'd be better off dead so they could decrease the surplus population. Now, please, don't email me. I know there are all kinds of ills with social programs in our country. I know that. I know they're abused. I know oftentimes they can be enslaving to those that receive them. But for now, this is about our attitude and our eyes and our hearts to the least of these that are around us. Here's the deal. You see, Dickens wasn't writing to just everybody. Dickens was writing to an audience. He was born into and was a citizen of what was at the time, and some might argue for all time, the greatest empire ever known to man, the British Empire. Have any of you ever been to the British Museum? Um, my wife and I went to um, Britain a few years ago. What, I mean, if you ever have a chance, what a, a just incredible. You go to the British Museum, and, you know, I'm not, I'm not a person that knows all these things, but you go to the British Museum, what you realize is how much Britain owned the whole world. Britain has everybody's stuff. Like, if anybody's looking for their stuff, it's likely in the London Museum. They actually have, you know those giant um, lions that you see outside of the pyramids in Egypt? They have one, because they took it. Like, the Rosetta Stone is in there. They have everything. And Dickens is living at the latter part of this empire. He was born into and he was a citizen of it. At its height, it was the largest empire in history. And for over a century, it was the foremost global power. 
By 1922, the British Empire held sway over 458 million people, one-fifth of the world's population. This is who Dickens is writing his story to. And one thing is always true of empires. There are people at the top of them whose names you know, and there are people at the bottom whose names you don't. There are those who rise in empires and those who are crushed by empires. There are those who benefit from them and those who are exploited by them. And it was this revelation, it was this opening of Dickens' eyes, this is why he writes so much about it, that drew him to write A Christmas Carol. Specifically, in 1843, he took a visit to the Cornish tin mines. During those visits, he encountered child laborers working in deplorable and heart-wrenching conditions. And after touring the mines, he immediately set to work on a pamphlet that was to be titled An Appeal to the People of England on Behalf of the Poor Man's Child. It was intended to be a call to end child labor, particularly in the mines. But Dickens soon concluded, however, brilliantly, that this call for labor reform and charity for the poor would be more resoundingly received if it were set forth during the course of a story. Why does Jesus teach so much in parables? Particularly one cloaked in the setting of London at Christmas. This revelation came to Dickens in October of 1843, barely two months before Christmas. In an effort to ensure the book would be published at that time of year when its message would resonate the most, it was going to be a Herculean task. Dickens began to write a Christmas carol at a feverish pace. The book was finished in six weeks. And he published this first edition at his own expense. See, Dickens had had the opportunity to see the underbelly of an empire. How the rich had profited by the poor and closed their eyes to their plight. In fact, in 1839, it was at this when Dickens is writing, it's estimated that nearly half of all funerals in London were for children under the age of 10. Now, if you're just a casual fan of the Christmas Carol story, as I was, I'd never really watched the movie the whole way through, let alone read the book. It wasn't until I did this study that I came across a pretty disturbing scene in the movie that is usually left out. You don't see this uh, often. In fact, I had never even heard of it before. It's a scene that's particularly poignant when you understand what Dickens was trying to do with his work. And while it's not the cheeriest of scenes, now heck, I did give you Tiny Tim, God bless us one and all. I do have to show you this and understand what was going on in the culture into which Dickens wrote it and, and we see it acted. The name would mean nothing to you. It's a place, like many in this world. Do we have enough wood for the night? Ah, it'll last through. At least there's one thing still free in this country. Mary, piece of egg cooked. They're too hot. It'll be cold soon enough. Where did you get these, Father? I didn't steal them, if that's what you're saying. She didn't say you stole them, Ben. She should have some respect. Don't berate the girl. They fell from a cart into the road. Your father's not a thief, girl. Not yet. Institutions. 
Have you visited any of them, these institutions you speak of? No, I'm taxed for them, isn't that enough? Is it? Ben, come back to the fire. Look at these hands, Meg. They're hard hands, they've done hard work. I want to work. I want to have bread for my children. It's not right that there's no work. Together, Ben, that's the important thing. I love you, Meg. I love the children. Tomorrow, take the children and go to the parish poorhouse. No. No. I'd rather we all drowned in the river than go to one of those places and be separated forever. Until I get work. No. Ben, we're a family. We stay together. Come. Come back to the fire. Come. human race. Look here, beneath my robe. Look upon these. What are they? They are your children. They are the children of all who walk the earth unseen. Their names are ignorance, and want, beware of them. For upon their brow is written the word doom. They spell the downfall of you and all who deny their existence. Having no refuge, no resource. Are there no workhouses? Are there no prisons? I do not wish to see them. I've thought as much. They are hidden. But they live. Oh, they live. Well, time has come for me to leave you. I don't know if you feel that, like when you watch it, but man, they're hidden. But they live. They live. Cover it up. I don't want to see it. But they live. You see, you and I have been born into an empire, too. In fact, one right after the British. We now are the richest, most powerful, most successful culture that's ever lived. And we live in the richest, most powerful part of the richest, most powerful nation. And the question for you and I this Christmas is, do we have eyes to see? Because ignorance and want, they live. They live. And be careful. The line in the book is, be careful of ignorance because he's very wise. America controls nearly 20% of the world's wealth. There are around 6 billion people in the world, and there are roughly 300 million people in the U.S. That makes America less than 5% of the world's population. And this 5% own a fifth of the world's wealth. One billion people in the world don't have access to clean water, while the average American uses 400 to 600 liters of water every day. 
Every second, seven seconds, somewhere in the world, a child under the age of five dies of hunger, while Americans throw away 14% of the food we purchase. Nearly one billion people in the world live on less than one American dollar a day. Another 2.5 billion in the world live less on less than $2 a day. More than half of the world lives on less than $2 a day, while the average American teenager, the average American teenager spends nearly $150 a week. 1.6 billion people in the world have no electricity. Nearly 1 billion people in the world cannot read or sign their names. Nearly 100 million children are denied basic education. By far, most of the people in the world do not own a car. One third of American families own three cars. One in seven children worldwide, 158 million or so, has to go to work every day just to survive. Four out of five American adults are high school graduates. Americans spend more annually on trash bags than nearly half the world does on all its goods. You see, ignorance is very dangerous. But it's not just the world. How about our little corner of the woods? One quick example, the per capita income here in Mendham, New Jersey, is $61,000 a year. The per capita income in Camden, one hour from here, is $9,000 a year. The high school graduation rate in our communities is nearly, in every school that your children go to, 100%. Do you know what the high school graduation is in Trenton, one hour from here? 48%. Now, you might be saying, what does any of this have to do with Christmas? Well, the answer is this. Jesus, this sweet little innocent baby born into a manger to poor, wandering, underclass parents, guess what he was born into? He was born into an empire. Maybe prior to the British and the American, the greatest one the world has ever known, the Roman Empire. And that would make sense because the Bible has a lot to say about empires. Most of the Bible is a history told by people living in lands occupied by conquering superpowers. It's a book written almost exclusively from the underside of power. It is, as one writer said, an oppression narrative. The, the majority of the Bible was written by a minority people living under the rule and reign of massive, mighty empires, from the Egyptian Empire to the Babylonian Empire to the Persian Empire to the Assyrian Empire to the Roman Empire. This can make... Reading the Bible, very difficult to understand if you're reading it as a citizen of the most powerful empire that's ever lived. Yet, God is the God of the oppressed, of the marginalized, of the broken. He's the God that always is always the threat to the empires of man. God is only interested in one empire, and it's his. You see, you see, you need to understand this, and I, I know this might offend, but God is not interested in the American empire. He's interested in the kingdom of God. And that's what he's building, because it's the only one that actually has any potential to save anyone. It's a kingdom in which he reigns, and he's king, and therefore, it's always a risk. The kingdom of God is always a risk to the kings of the day. That's why Herod, upon hearing the truth of Jesus, tries to trick wise men into revealing where the new king is. And when he can't find him, what does he do? He commits a genocide against all children, even near the vicinity of Bethlehem, that are two years uh, old and younger. 
Because Jesus is always a threat to the kingdoms of the day, including yours and mine. You see, God hears the cries of these children. God hears the cries of the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed. He always has. He always will. This is the story of Christmas. God coming to redeem the broken, the marginalized, the poor, and to call them to himself. All men, all men, but those that would hear. I just want to give you a little bit of, a, a little bit of background on this. Exodus 3, 7 to 9. What does God say? God says, I've seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them. This is the story of Christmas. Sometime later. I have come down to rescue them. From the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land into a good and spacious land. A land flowing with milk and honey. The home of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites. The Hivites and the Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. And I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Deuteronomy 26, 6-8. But the Egyptians mistreated us and made us suffer, subjecting us to harsh labor. Then we cried out to the Lord. And the Lord heard our voice, and he saw our misery, toil, and oppression. So he brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Nehemiah 9, 27. When they were oppressed, they cried out to you. From heaven you heard them, and in your great compassion you gave them deliverers, who rescued them from the hands of their enemies. Psalm 103, the Lord works righteousness and the justice for who? All the oppressed. See, the story of Christmas is a baby born into an empire controlled by a king, a Caesar, who had them so beaten down that they had actually begun to believe that he was God. And the only way was, was hoping in him and his system. If you don't know the Bible, this baby born in a manger that we've made such a sweet, idyllic little cherubim of, this same baby, when he grows up, we don't know much about Jesus' childhood, but we do know this. When he comes to start his ministry, how does he announce what he is there for, what he's going to do? What is the story of God come to earth? Luke 4, 16-21, he went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he, be, he began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Do you see, this is Christmas. This present day, this present Christmas is not so different than the day of Jesus. This present day, this present Christmas is not so different than the, the Christmas of Dickens. There are still empires and powers and riches. There are still poor and broken and marginalized people on the bottom. Oh, you can close your eyes. You can close your eyes. But they still live. And the Lord hears their cries. 
And what God has been asking of his people, since he first gathered the Israelites together from Mount Sinai to the Mount of Transfiguration, God has been looking for some priests. He said to the Israelites, although the whole earth is mine, you are going to be, for me, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A priest, do you know what a priest does? A priest, he mediates the divine. To mediate is to come between. A priest comes between people and gods. A priest shows you what his or her God is like. So when God invites his people to be priests, it's an invitation for them to show the world who this God is and what this God is like. Jesus comes as what? A priest. To show us who this God is and what this God is like. To mediate between God and man. Born into a world not all that different than this one, this present one. And what does he say to those who would follow? Go into all the world and go into all creation and preach the gospel and make disciples. Tell them about me. Show them about me. Paul goes on. To talk, he says, you need to be ministers of reconciliation, priests between God and man. He said, Christ in you is the hope of the world. You become the story of Christmas. This present Christmas, the universal truth remains the same. One writer put it this way, in a broken world, God still needs a body. God needs flesh and blood. God needs bones and skin so that the pharaohs, and the Caesars and the kings will know just who this God is that they're dealing with and how this God acts in a broken world. And not just so pharaohs will know, but so that all of humanity will know. This Christmas, this present Christmas, God is still looking for a people, a holy nation, a different kind of empire. He's looking for them not to close their eyes to what's right in their backyard. 48% of kids in Trenton graduate high school? I mean, really, does anybody give a damn? It's a great line by uh, um, Tony Campolo. He, he talked about something like this one time, and he, he, said, uh, he said, here's the problem. I know none of you give, a, and he used a stronger word, one I won't use. And he said, here's how I know you don't know, because right now you're more concerned that I said that word than you are about the people I just told you about. Does anybody care? Does anybody care? This Christmas, this present God is still looking for a people, a holy nation, a different kind of empire. He's looking for them not to close their eyes to what is in their backyard and to the plight of those who suffer around the world. He's looking for people who will not give lip service to the fact that they're the body of Christ, who won't just sing about being the body of Christ, but will actually start walking around and acting like the body of Christ. That's the story of Christmas. Come on up. That was a hard message. This Christmas, Menham Hills Community Church. You know the warnings, right? Jesus tells a story. I was going to include it today, but it's too long. The separation of the sheep and the goats, right? I mean, this Dickens thing is essentially the story of the sheep and the goats. Jesus is going to come. The people are going to say, you know, Lord, when did we see you hungry? When did we ever just walk by you? And he's going to say, what you did to the least of these, you did to me. What you didn't do, you didn't do for me. This Christmas... My prayer for us as a church is that we would open our eyes to the world around us. That we wouldn't shut our heart to those in need. For you, I could give you a list of stuff. I was my, my aunt's 101 years old. My mother called me last week after church. She said, Aunt Mary's dying. We need to go down there. And 
I went down to a nursing home with my mom, and look, I'm no different than you. I need to get my butt engaged in being, being Christ at Christmas. And I, I mean, my, it was horrible. It was hor- It was horrible. These people need, you know, you need somebody that cares. I went on the association, uh, I don't know, there's probably a pol- more politically correct name for this now, but ARC, it used to be the Association for Retarded Citizens. And went on that website this week, and I saw what Drew University was doing down there for the kids. You can do this. The world is still looking for Jesus at Christmas time. Give up a weekend, donate a gift, write a check, advocate those for those without a voice, go to a nursing home, help out in Dover, go to the mission of Morristown, make the decision to go to Pine Ridge in June or Guatemala in the summer. This Christmas, Christ can still come to a broken world. He still sets captive frees. But this Christmas, he's doing it through the body of Mark and Jim and Ralph and Sarah and Kate. This Christmas, Christ may yet still come, not in a manger, not merely in memorial, but in the form of you, his messenger. Don't close your eyes this year to ignorance and want. And be careful of ignorance, because he's dangerous. Let's pray. Lord, help us to see who we are. Help us to understand our role in your story. Would you help us this Christmas to not be people that are bah humbug people, but to people that embrace who we are in the story. Ministers, priests, with a story to tell, a life to live. God, would you, would you, would you sing a new song to your people that would cause us to lift our head and give us purpose and power in the great name of the one whose birth we celebrate.